1657, the very last chapter of, or, or book of the Bible, I should say. Revelation chapter 2, reading verses 18-29. My friends, hear now. This is the very word of God. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you, now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. But hold fast what you have until I come. He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as you know, we are continuing our series on the book of Revelation. And today, as we look at the letter to the church in Thyatira, this is the first of a two-part series on this section, we see as a theme that Christ warns the church not to tolerate immoral and mystical teaching. Christ warns the church not to tolerate immoral and mystical teaching. Now, as we've been looking at this book, you know in chapter 1 we've had this amazing picture painted for us of the risen, conquering, glorious Christ who reveals himself as he stands amidst the seven candlesticks, the seven lampstands, which of course are symbolic of the seven churches to which he will be writing these letters. 
chapters 2 and 3 then consist of the letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, or children, as you know, as we've been talking about this, what today we would call the nation of Turkey. The first one, as you may remember, was Ephesus, which not only had lost its first love, but more significantly had left its first love. It had left its first love. Smyrna, which the Lord encouraged in the midst of persecution. No negative thing to say about Smyrna. Pergamum, which was not exercising discipline against the Nicolaitans, the Nicolaitans, who were those basically, we would say, sort of the libertines, sort of the ones that were lax in terms of morality. And Pergamum was not exercising discipline. And, of course, we talked about how important discipline is for the church. Well, today's lesson is similar to the previous one with two differences. Apparently, in Thyatira, these doctrines were actually being promoted. It wasn't just that, as in Pergamum, that the church wasn't disciplining them, but in Thyatira, we've, they've now taken a further step. They're actually promoting these doctrines. And as we'll see more next week, uh, trying to justify them on a religious basis, if you will. You've seen this sort of thing throughout church history, where different denominations have actually tried to justify, or cults certainly, but even... Uh, historic denominations have tried to justify all kinds of sexual immorality as being quite okay. But more, of, more than that, there was a mystical tendency in Thyatira, a mystical tendency which undercut the ability to deal with these heresies. As we introduce then Thyatira today, we first of all look at the city. Uh, like the other cities we've considered, Thyatira had its own unique setting. And before I get to that, let me just remind you once again, it's not exactly like a clock, clock face, but never, uh, clockwise from Ephesus and then going up to uh, Smyrna and then Pergamum. And now we're cutting, we're cutting east, southeast, over to Thyatira. So we're going clockwise around these seven churches in Asia Minor. Um, so Thyatira was in the mouth of a long valley that ran north and south, connecting a couple of other valleys, Hermes and Caicos. Through this valley passed all sorts of trade and communication. The imperial post road took that route. Now, those of you who may remember from American history and also from the U.S. Constitution, there are things called post roads. In other words, roads that were maintained by the government for the movement of mail, for the, for the, for, to post letters, if you will. Uh, today, you can go up to uh, New England and uh, New York and you'll see signs for the Boston Post Road. Well, this was the Imperial Post Road that took that route. And with Pergamum as the official capital, 
That's what we dealt with last time, Pergamum. With Pergamum as the official capital, the road running southeast through Thyatira to the rest of the country was of utmost importance, this post road. But the location of Thyatira was also greatly important. When there was rivalry and warfare between the kingdom of Pergamum and the kingdom of Seleucus, Thyatira served as a garrison of troops which could fight a delaying action against an invader. And so it was a military town, a lot of a military town, military forces. But on the other hand, its setting gives the impression of weakness because it's an open, open, smiling valley, if you will, bordered by gently sloping hills and no natural fortress. According to Ramsey, a commentator, the city represents the paradox of, quote, weakness made strong. Its inhabitants, first of all, as you would guess, would be soldiers, soldier citizens. It was a, there was a spirit of militarism, of military things. The city's coins reflect the dedication to military matters. The hero Tyrimnos is pictured as going forth on horseback with a battle axe over his shoulder. Think about this, children. A battle axe over his shoulder great representative of a military colony. What do you think he's going to do with that battle axe? To conquer and to dash his enemies in pieces. That's the hero that was portrayed on the city's coins. But it was also a city of tradesmen. In times of peace, Thyatira took advantage of its location to become rich. More trade guilds were known here than any other Asian city. So I'm going to give you a list now of the guilds, that is to say the people that worked in a particular trade, the guilds. You had wool workers, linen workers, makers of outer garments, leather workers, dyers, those that would dye, uh, use dye to color clothes, Tanners, those that, again, would tan hides. Potters, potters, pottery. Bakers, slave dealers, and bronze smiths. Now, there were probably other more specialized trades and guilds for other types of garments. There was particular interest in the bronze industry, as you might expect, because if you have an army, you need weapons. And so, what do you think those helmets were made of? They were made of bronze. And so the bronze industry supplied helmets for the garrison. Its religion was somewhat obscure. The coinage indicates that there was a worship of Tyramnos, the fellow that we talked about a moment ago. As one person put it, the heroic embodiment of the spirit of the garrison city. Nothing, or virtually nothing, is known of its particular history, but we can still easily imagine that it was always in a dependent role. It was a buffer between warring factions. Its fate 
determined by these other powers. You know, throughout history, we've seen countries like this. We think of the Soviet bloc countries during the Cold War, designed by the Soviet Union as a, as a barrier, as a buffer. We think of Poland and other countries like that. And so it appears that Thyatira, despite having this military might, on the other hand, was also sometimes subject to being conquered. As far as the church is concerned, like the city, the church lies basically in obscurity. The one person we do know from the church of Thyatira is a woman. Why, you may remember her, Lydia, the seller of purple, was from Thyatira. She was a devout Jew who converted to Christianity. That idea of the seller of purple points to a bright color, turkey red, uh, in which, um, uh, which is derived from a plant root, and which grows abundantly in those regions. And so Lydia, the seller of purple, uh, presumably a fairly well-to-do woman, uh, she was uh, encountered, of course, by the Apostle Paul in Philippi, but she was originally from Thyatira, Lydia, the seller of purple. Well, as we look at the text today, as we look at this, as we introduce the text, we notice, as we have before, in verse 18, it begins, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, angel being a messenger and whether that be just a preacher as an individual or whether it be representative of all of the presbyters, all of the elders, either way uh, the leadership was being addressed and of course this material was written. It was a, we could say a written, well as we get to the negative part it's a written indictment, is it not? It's written, of course, there are but the negative things as well. Notice the description of Christ here in verse 18. First of all, he is described, these things says, the Son of God. The Son of God. And this phrase, my friends, points to the deity of Messiah. It points to the fact that he is the one who has from all eternity been God. We know the Trinity is the only true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so he is here called the Son of God. But as we look at verse 27, we'll see another twist to this as well. This also, this term, the Son of God, also refers to his position as the God-man, God come in the flesh, to whom the Father gives authority. But notice how he's described. He has eyes like a flame of fire. A flame of fire. You know what that means? I want you to think about that just a moment. Think of someone, or think of eyes like a flame of fire. That's quite, quite the picture, isn't it? But what is being indicated by that? What's being indicated is that Jesus is able to look right into a person. And so it shows his piercing omniscience. The fact that he pierces through. He sees you right now, children, 
older people, he sees everything that you are thinking about right now. That you thought about five minutes ago. He sees right through into you. He is the one who, during his earthly ministry, could look into a person's soul. This is why in John chapter 2 and verse 25, we read that Jesus no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And, of course, that's illustrated. You remember the woman at the well? Remember the woman at the well, John chapter 4? And Jesus said to the woman, the Samaritan woman, give me a drink. And he engages her in conversation. He knows exactly who she is. As a matter of fact, when she tries to say, go call your husband and come here, she said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. She didn't have to tell him that. He knew it already. He knows all things. He could see what was going on, all the all of the the thoughts, all of the confusion as he was talking with her. He could see all of that. And he was also sovereignly directing it too. And my friends, he still possesses this penetrating sight. It is something that should cause us all to step back and think about these things because the Lord Jesus who is the Son of God knows exactly who we are and furthermore he's described as the one whose feet are like burnished bronze the reference may very well be to glowing copper the heat that would make, melt gold and silver would only make copper to glow what is being indicated then is our Lord's infinite capacity to endure. The bronze indicates that he would march as a mighty warrior against his enemies. Again, uh, later on in this, in this passage, verse 27, quotation from Psalm 2, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. He shall, they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel. Here, that concept of his being of his being, of his conquering, of his all-powerful rule is being indicated through his feet like fine brass. Notice also it says, says this. These things says the Son of God. His speech, his very speech, Jesus' very speech is authoritative. Therefore, his word is authoritative. And we must submit to his law and his word. Well, as he speaks then, he begins by commending. So here we have the commendation. He begins by commending the church at Thyatira. In general, he says, verse 19, I know your works. I know your this is a general sort of statement. Um, and, uh, of course, deeds mostly we think of external actions of faith, but internal actions too. He says, I know your deeds. You know, our Lord's brother reminds us of the importance of works. Remember in the little epistle of James, 
James uh, chapter 2, James uh, chapter 2, starting in uh, verse uh, 14, what does it profit my brethren if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food? And what do you says to them? Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But some will say, you have faith and I have works? Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, if we have faith, that faith of necessity is going to come to expression in terms of our good deeds. So that's the general commendation, but then he deals particularly. Notice the list that we have here in verse 19. First of all, not only do I know your works, but I know your love. I know your love. Now the Ephesians' problem, as you recall, had been that they had left their first love. They had left their first love. Here he's commending Thyatira. I know your love. But this quality is mentioned first in this list to emphasize that this was the most apparent quality in the church in Thyatira. I know your love. I know your love. And then he says, and I know your faith. Not faithfulness, but faith. Faith is the root out of which grows all these other Christian graces. I know your love. I know your faith. And then he says, I know your ministry. I know or your service. The word for service is diakonia. So we get the word deacon. We get the word deacon from the word diakonia. You know what it means, literally? It means a wager on tables. Did you know that? So think of a waitress, or a waiter, as the case may be. And so that's the, that's the picture of service. One who would wait on tables. This service was another example of that love and warm hospitality for which this church undoubtedly was known. One commentator, Huxima, used his sanctified imagination by saying this. This is the way he put it. The leaders, he said, would have to be on the alert if they wanted to be the first to call on a sick person or someone in need. Because everyone in the congregation displayed that type of diaconal concern. The women probably gathered in the afternoon to work for the relief of the poor. And so the church at Thyatira, you see, is being commended by Jesus for its works, for its, for its love, for its faith, for its service, its service to others. It was great. It was doing wonderfully. And then also its perseverance or its patience. Like most of the churches, Thyatira was subject to persecution, perhaps even for good deeds. But they bore their burdens of slander with patience. But it gets better than that. Did you notice it? Notice what he says at the end of verse, verse 19. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Isn't that amazing? The last are more than the first. So he's saying, look, their works lately were better than those that they had initially. And far from being stagnant, 
the church was growing spiritually. Well, what possibly could be wrong? But there was something wrong. And that leads us then to the second major header, which we will just deal with very briefly. And that is the problem and the warning. Because Jesus says in verse 20, nevertheless, nevertheless, I have this against you. I have this against you. How often in these epistles, these letters to the churches, our Lord has to take them to task for their shortcomings. He has to says, he has to say, after saying, yeah, these things are great, he has to say, but nevertheless, I have this against you. And then he's going to go on and talk about how they tolerate this so-called prophetess, Jezebel, who will not repent of her sexual immorality and who is leading others to commit adultery. And he indeed would judge the church, not only for these mystical tendencies, these, these ideas that do not come from Scripture, these mystical tendencies, religious but mystical, unbiblical, but also the sexual immorality and the laxness in discipline. So I have three points, three major points to deal with today. And the first is this. Be thankful for the graciousness Jesus shows in issuing this warning and calling them to repentance. Be thankful. Be thankful. For the graciousness Jesus shows in issuing this warning and calling them to repentance. You know, none of us likes to be called to repentance. None of us likes that. It's not fun to be told we're doing something wrong. But it is a kindness to us. It is a kindness. It is a form of graciousness to us. And that is certainly true when it is our Savior himself who does that. And so be thankful for the Joes in war and in calling them to repent. Number two, be careful to avoid these pitfalls. We'll talk more about this, Lord willing, next week. But be careful to avoid these pitfalls. There were many good things you could say about the church in Thyatira. Love, faith, ministry, perseverance, progress even. The things you have now are better than the start. Yet, those things were not enough. As the church was lax, the church was loose with regard to discipline and with regard to mystical tendencies. So be careful. So be thankful for Jesus' graciousness. Be careful to avoid these pitfalls. We'll speak more of these next week. But thirdly, be looking always to Jesus for salvation. Be looking always to Jesus for salvation. Notice that he is the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire. And my friends, only an omniscient Savior can save us. Only a Savior who knows 
all things and knows all about us can save us. He sees into our hearts, knowing all of our struggles that must be addressed, sympathizing with us in the struggle. He sees all things, including the devil's work, the one who hates us and would, if he could, destroy us. He sees that too. And so we need a Savior who sees all things. Secondly, he whose feet are like burnished bronze points to the fact that only an omnipotent Savior can save us. Only one who has all power and authority. Only one to whom all power and authority have been given. It is only that Savior who can save us. Because this leads us thirdly to the fact that he who rules over the nations with a rod of iron points to the fact that only a sovereign Savior can save us. He is not only all-powerful and all-knowing, but this Jesus is directing all events for our salvation, including all the horrible things we see going on around us, all the turmoil, all the things that are so disturbing and distressing to us as a nation, as a society, but also in our own individual lives. Jesus knows all about that. Jesus is sovereign over those things, and he's directing all of those events. Why? to work in our lives and in this world in order to bring us to glory. As a matter of fact, he is setting up our enemies for destruction. And at the very same time as he's doing that, so that his and our enemies fall into the pit which they themselves have prepared, at the very same time, he is preserving our souls for eternity. He's doing it in this amazing, glorious way so as to bring honor to himself. And fourthly, he is the bright and morning star, the harbinger, the hint of the dawn after a dark, dreary, maybe damp night. So you're on guard duty. We'll talk about this more next week. And you're waiting for the dawn. You're waiting. When is the dawn coming? It's dark. It's, it's cold. All of a sudden, that morning star appears. For you see, as the bright and morning star, we are pointed to him as the one who is a glorious and beautiful Savior. Because only a glorious and beautiful Savior can save us. You remember in Matthew 17, uh, the transfiguration of Christ? Do you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration when he was his, his garment became glistening white and the disciples were just totally overwhelmed with him? My friends, that's who he is. He is all-glorious. He is all-glorious in himself and in his redemptive work. 
Interestingly, you remember Balaam? We talked about Balaam recently. Remember Balaam, the false prophet, who was told to, uh, to curse, but uh, try as he might, he couldn't do it. Balaam himself prophesied about Jesus in these words. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter, the rod of, of power and authority. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. Even the false prophet Balaam prophesied about Jesus. He is the one of whom Balaam prophesied. And he is the one who at the very end of this book is described in the very same way, the very last chapter, Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. My friends, our Savior must be omniscient, all-knowing. Our Savior must be one who is omnipotent, all-powerful. Our Savior must be one who is sovereign, directing all things for our good and his glory. And our Savior must be glorious and beautiful. Only that Savior can save us. And when he comes, when he comes, what a beautiful sight it will be. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And Lord, we do thank Thee for the glory of Christ, the glory of our Savior, and we, that we would be drawn to Him with the eyes of faith, seeing Him high and lifted up. But we long, O oh Lord, may we indeed long, and we do long for the day when we will see Him with our literal eyes. And so we pray with the church in every age, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, come quickly, and save us. And so, Lord, be pleased to do all those things. For the we pray in thy name. Amen.